Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. I'm delighted to welcome Daniel Suskind here today uh, to talk about the future of the work. The future of work is really one of the signature issues that we in the RSA are interested in. I'm head of the Future Work Centre uh, here, and that's because we take a view, really, that when work changes, when production changes, then the possibilities for society and the world that we live in change quite profoundly too. So Daniel is a fellow of economics at Balliol College and had a string of jobs in 10 Downing Street uh, in what remains the last Labour government. Um, he is author uh, of a, a, an excellent book really on the future of work already, the, the future of the professions. I think it's fair to say comes along with his father and his brother from the first family of future of work in the UK. Um, most importantly of all, however, He's here to talk about his new book, A World Without Work, and I cannot really recommend it highly enough. There are a number of books on the future of work that talk about automation. There are a number of books that talk about artificial intelligence. There are some books that talk about these issues in the context of economic theory and what that means for all of us. And there are even fewer books that then go on to talk about what we should do as a society about it. This book does all four... And therefore, I really, really recommend it as a fantastic exploration of what really is one of the most important topics uh, of our time. And with that, I'm going to hand over to Daniel. Well, th thank you very much for that warm uh, introduction. Great pleasure to be with you uh, this afternoon to talk to you about a world without work. Uh, and I want to begin with a story uh, the great manure crisis of the 1890s, uh, which should have come as no surprise. Uh, for some time in great cities like London and New York, the most popular forms of transport had relied upon horses, hundreds of thousands of them to heave uh, carts, wagons, cabs, and a variety of other vehicles through the streets. With these horses came manure, and lots of it. Uh, one enthusiastic health officer in Rochester, New York calculated that in his city alone, horses produced enough manure to fill an acre of land to a height of 175 feet, so almost as high as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Apocryphally, people at the time extrapolated uh, from these calculations to an inescapably manure-filled future. Uh, a New York commentator who predicted that piles would soon reach the height of third-story windows... Uh, a London reporter who imagined that by the middle of the 20th century, the streets would be buried under nine feet of the stuff. It said the policymakers did not know what to do. They couldn't simply ban horses. They were far too economically important. But the twist in the tale is that in the end, policymakers didn't need to worry. In the 1870s, the first internal combustion engine was invented. In the 1880s, it was installed in the first automobile and only a few decades later, Henry Ford brought cars to the mass market with the Model T. By 1912, New York had more cars than horses. Five years after that, the last horse-drawn tram uh, was decommissioned in the city. The great manure crisis was over. The parable of horseshit, as Elizabeth Colbert called it in The New Yorker, has been told many times over the years. And in most tellings of the story, it's cast in an optimistic light as a tale of technological triumph. But for Wassily Leontief, uh, the Russian-American economist who would win the Nobel Prize for economics, for Wassily Leontief, the Russian-American economist who would win the Nobel Prize in 1973, the same events suggested a more unsettling conclusion. What he saw instead was how a new technology, the combustion engine, had taken a creature that for millennia has sat at the center of economic life and banished it to the sidelines. And in a set of articles written in the early 1980s, he made what is now one of the most infamous claims in modern economic thought. What technological progress had done to horses, he said, it would eventually do to human beings as well, drive us out of work. What cars and tractors were to them, he said, computers and robots would be to us. And today, the world is gripped again by Leontief's fear. In the US, 30% of workers think that their jobs are likely to be replaced by robots 
and computers in their lifetime. The same proportion in the UK think it will happen in the next 20 years. And in my book, my new book, A World Without Work, I explain why we have to take these sorts of fears seriously. Not always their substance, as we shall see, but certainly their spirit. You know, will there be enough well-paid work for everyone to do in the 21st century? I think this is one of the greatest questions of our time. And in, our book, in my book, I, I explain why the answer is no. Why I think now that the threat of technological unemployment is real. I don't think there's going to be some dramatic technological big bang in the next few decades after which you know, everyone wakes up and finds themselves without a job. You know, robots are not going to take everyone's job. But I do think that as we move through the 21st century and technological progress continues its relentless advance, there is a real risk that more and more people find themselves unable to make the sorts of economic contributions that they might have hoped to make in the 20th century. And I think this is a a fundamental challenge to the way that we live together today in society, and that's what I want to explore today. And what I want to do is I want to look at five things. I want to say a little bit about the history of technology and work. I then want to share a very general view of how it is that I think about technology. I want to share some thoughts on what I think this means for the future of work. I then want to set out the different problems that I think this will create. And finally, I want to just close on a note of optimism, why it is that in spite of these problems, I remain optimistic. And then I'm hoping in the the Q&A and the conversation that follows, we can talk a bit more about what it is that we ought to do about this. So first, the history. Economic growth is a very recent phenomenon. For most of the 300,000 years that human beings have been around, economic life has been relatively stagnant. But over the last few hundred years, as you can see, that came to an explosive end. The amount each person produced increased about 13-fold, and world output rocketed nearly 300-fold. If you imagine the sum of human existence was an hour long, all of this action happened in the last half second or so, you know, in the literal blink of an eye. And it was Britain that led the economic charge, thundering ahead of everyone else in the Industrial Revolution around the 1760s. Over the following decades, New machines were invented and put to use that greatly improved the way that goods were produced. And these new technologies allowed manufacturers to operate more productively than ever before, in short, to produce far more with far less. And it's here, at the beginning of modern economic growth, that we can also detect the origins of automation anxiety. People, even back then, started to worry that using these machines to make more things would also mean less demand for them as well. This anxiety that automation would destroy jobs spilled into protest and dissent. During the Industrial Revolution, as as many know, technological vandalism by the so-called Luddites was widespread. In fact, in 1812, the British Parliament felt forced to pass the Destruction of Stocking Frames Etc. Act. Destroying machines became a crime punishable by death Uh, And the following year, in fact, several people were tried and executed. Importantly, though, this automation anxiety was not confined to the 17th and the 18th centuries. It continued from then and right up until the present day. And as we know, in the last few years, there really has been a sort of frenzy of writing and commentary uh, on the threat of automation. But what's interesting is that if you go back to, say, 1940, the debate about technological unemployment was already so commonplace that the New York Times felt comfortable calling it an old argument. In fact, in almost every decade since 1920, I was able to find some article engaging in some way in the New York Times with the threat of technological unemployment. And yet, most of these anxieties about the economic harm caused by new technologies have turned out to be misplaced. Looking back over the last few hundred years, there's very little evidence to support their primary fear that technological progress would create large pools of unemployed, permanently unemployed workers. It's true that workers have been displaced by new technologies and often in, uh, in not particularly palatable ways, but eventually most have also tended to find new work to do. And so the question we have to ask is, well, why? Why is it that in the past, Despite the fears of so many people, technological progress did not lead to mass unemployment. And the answer to that question is that when we look back on what actually happened over the last 300 years, it's that what we see is the harmful effect of technological change on work, the one that really preoccupied our anxious ancestors 
it's only half the story. You know, yes, machines took the place of human beings in performing certain tasks, but they didn't just substitute for human beings. They also complemented them at other tasks that had not yet been automated, raising the demand for human beings to do all those activities instead. And this helpful force, so often forgot about when we think about technology and work, works in three different ways. Perhaps the most obvious way that this helpful complementing force helps human beings is by making them more productive or more efficient at doing certain tasks and activities. You know, a taxi driver can use a sat-nav system to follow unfamiliar roads, or an architect can use computer-assisted design software to design more complex buildings. But economic history also shows us a second, uh, less direct way that the complementing force has helped human beings. If we think of the economy as a pie, technological progress has made the pie far bigger. As productivity increases, incomes rise, and demand grows. The British pie, for instance, is more than 100 times the size it was 300 years ago. So clearly, people displaced from tasks in the old pie can find new tasks to do in this new, bigger bit of pie instead. In turn, there's a third way that the complementing force has helped workers. Technological progress not only makes the pie bigger, but it's changed the pie, too. Take the British economy again. Not only is it more than 100 times bigger than it was three centuries ago, but that output and the way it's produced is completely transformed. You know, 500 years ago, the economy was made up of farms, 300 years ago of factories, and today it's made up of offices. And again, it's intuitive to see how these changes might have helped displaced workers. As the economy changes over time, people displaced from tasks in the old pie could again tumble into performing new tasks in this changed bit of pie instead. So distinguishing clearly between this substituting force and this complementing force really helps to explain why all those past anxieties about automation were repeatedly misplaced. Now, in the clash between these two fundamental forces, our ancestors tended to pick the wrong winner. Now, time and time again, they either completely neglected that helpful complementing force or mistakenly imagined that it would be overwhelmed by the harmful substituting force. And that's why they repeatedly underestimated the demand for the work of human beings that would remain. There's always been, by and large, enough to keep people in well-paid employment. Now I want to turn to technology, because every day, you know, we hear stories of systems and machines taking on tasks we thought only human beings could ever do. Drawing up legal contracts, uh, designing buildings, diagnosing illnesses, composing music, writing uh, news reports, countless examples. And given the time constraints today, I just want to share with you the general way it is that I think about technology in terms of thinking about the future of work. So although it's very clear today that machines can now do more than they could in the past, they can't do everything. Uh, you know, there are still limits to the harmful substituting force. The problem is that these boundaries are you know, really unclear and they're always changing. And lots of recent reports and books and articles have tried to work out the new limits to machine capabilities. Uh, and they've done it using a variety of different approaches. So one approach has been to try and identify which particular human faculties are hard to automate. So a really popular finding, for instance, is that new technologies struggle to perform tasks that require social intelligence, so face-to-face interaction and empathetic support. So from 1980 to 2012, jobs that require a high level of human interaction grew by about 12% as a share of the US workforce. A very different tack, rather than considering those faculties, instead to consider the tasks themselves and ask whether those tasks have features that make them hard or easy for a machine to handle. So if you come across a task where it's easy to define a goal, straightforward to tell whether or not that goal has been achieved, and there's lots of data for the machine to learn from, then chances are you're going to be able to automate that task. And a good example of this is identifying photos of cats. The goal is simple. Just answer the question, is this a cat? Uh, It's easy to tell whether or not the system has succeeded. Yes, that is indeed a cat. Uh, And, you know, there are lots of photos of cats out there uh, on the internet, I think perhaps disturbingly so, about 6.5 billion uh, on one number. 
The obvious problem, though, with marking out limits to the capabilities of machines in either of these ways is that any conclusions that you reach are likely to become outdated incredibly quickly. You know, those who try and identify the boundaries to the capabilities of machines are like the proverbial painters of the fourth rail bridge in Scotland, you know, a bridge so long that those painters supposedly had to start again as soon as they got to the end, because by then the paint would have started to peel. You know, spend time coming up with a sensible account of exactly what it is that machines can do today, and chances are by the time you're finished, you'll have to start again and readjust. So I think a better way to think about technology, and this is what I do in, in my new book, is to stop trying to identify specific limits. You know, repress that temptation we all have to sort of taxonomize and instead try and identify the more general trends. And I think if you do this, what you see is that beneath any sort of particular ripple of progress that we might see today, underneath there are you know, far deeper currents running. And although it's difficult to say exactly what it is that machines will be capable of in the future, we can be pretty certain that they're going to be able to do more than they can today. You know, over time, machines are going to relentlessly, gradually but relentlessly, advance further into the realm of tasks performed by human beings. You know, take any technology that exists today. Open your laptop, pick up your iPhone, and you can be pretty confident that this is the least, least advanced uh, it's ever going to be. And I call this process where machines take on more and more tasks once performed by human beings, task encroachment. And when you look at the three main capabilities that human beings bring to bear in their work, whether it's manual capabilities that involve dealing with the physical world, cognitive capabilities, our ability to think and reason, or effective capabilities, our capacity for feelings and emotions, whatever one you look at, what you see are machines gradually but relentlessly taking on more and more tasks that require each of these faculties. And if you have a look at the book, what you'll see are hundreds of examples of this process of task encroachment underway. But I think it's really important to remember that the examples I give are not meant to be exhausted, you know, exhaustive. Almost certainly there are some missing. Almost certainly in a few years' time when we look back, some of them are going to look pretty tired. And it's also important, I think, not to take the claims of the companies I talk about as gospel. You know, at times it can be pretty hard to distinguish you know, genuine corporate ambitions and achievements from you know, provocations just drawn up by marketeers whose job it is to exaggerate for a living. You know, the icing on the cake for me was at Christmas when someone asked whether or not I would like an artificially intelligent toothbrush. <laughs> um, not sure quite how intelligent you need to be to brush your teeth. The point is this, though. To dwell on any particular omission or exaggeration is really to miss the bigger picture, which is that machines are gradually encroaching on more and more tasks that in the past had required a rich range of uh, human capabilities. You know, economists are pretty wary of labeling any historical, any empirical regularity a rule or a law, but task encroachment just over time has proven to be as law-like, really, as any historical phenomenon can be. Now, barring catastrophe, it seems pretty certain to continue. And I think in thinking about the future of work, this is, how, this is the general way in which we ought to think about technology. So what does this mean, then, for the future of work, the sorts of changes that I've just described. Greek mythology tells a story, which some of you will be familiar with, of, of a man called Tantalus, who chops up his own son and serves him as a meal to the gods. Given uh, his dinner guests' omniscience, this turns out to be a very bad decision, uh, and his punishment is to stand for eternity in a pool of water up to his chin, surrounded by trees bursting with fruit. But the water recedes from his lips any time he leans over to take a sip, and the tree branches swing away any time he tries to reach out and take some fruit. The story of Tantalus, which gives us the word tantalize, I think captures the spirit of the first kind of technological unemployment, which we can think of as being frictional technological unemployment. Here, there is still work to be done. The problem is that not all workers will be able to reach out and take it up. Now, frictional technological unemployment doesn't mean there'll be fewer jobs for human beings to do, though, and this is, and this is quite important. Now, if we think in terms of those two forces from before, for the next decade or so in almost all economies, I expect that that harmful substituting force that displaces workers will be overwhelmed by that helpful complementing force 
that raises the demand for their work elsewhere. But for three reasons, I think that this in-demand work is increasingly likely to sit out the reach of more and more of those workers who want it. The first of these reasons is what I call skills mismatch, where displaced workers don't have the skills required to do the new work created by technological progress. And this is probably the most familiar type of frictional technological unemployment. So I won't say too much more about it, and we can maybe talk more about it in the questions later on. The second reason is place mismatch. And this is where displaced workers simply don't live in the same places as the new work is created. I mean, it's important to remember that in the, um, the early days of the internet, there was a moment when we thought that these sorts of worries about place and location you know, really wouldn't matter at all in the future. People spoke about the death of distance. Uh, we got excited about how the world is flat. But actually, looking at work today, the place where you live matters more than ever. I think this is a second important reason for thinking about when we're thinking about how technological unemployment might happen. The third, and I think maybe the most unfamiliar, is an identity mismatch, where displaced workers have an identity rooted in a particular sort of work and are willing to stay unemployed in order to protect that identity. So think of adult men in the US, for instance, displaced from manufacturing roles by new technologies. Some say that they would prefer not to work at all than to take up so-called pink-collar work, a really unfortunate term, but designed to capture the fact that many of the roles currently out of reach of machines are disproportionately held by women. So 97.7% of preschool and kindergarten teachers in the US are women, 92.2% of nurses, 82.5% of social workers. I think most economists tend to be comfortable with the idea of frictional technological unemployment. They can readily picture a world, a future, where there is lots of work for people to do, but because of mismatches like those three I've just described, displaced workers aren't able to take it up. But my fear is that as we move through the 21st century, we may see the emergence of a second type of technological unemployment, one where there is simply not enough work to be done full stop. And this I call structural technological unemployment. And this, I think, is a less comfortable idea for economists. So can this idea be right? What about the fact that after three centuries of radical technological change, there's still enough work for people to do? Does that not tell us there's always going to be sufficient work for the work of sufficient demand for the work of human beings? And one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that I think the answer to that is no. And the fundamental reason why is this process of task encroachment that I just set out before. So again, think in terms of those two forces. You know, there can be little doubt that as task encroachment continues, that harmful substituting force is going to go, grow stronger. You know, workers are going to be displaced from a wider range of tasks and activities than ever before. Why, though, can we not simply rely on that helpful complementing force to overcome that effect as it has done for 300 years? The answer, I think, is that task encroachment also has a second, you know, more pernicious effect. Over time, it's also likely to wear down that helpful complementing force as well. So take that productivity effect that I mentioned before, where new technologies make people more productive. In the future, new technologies are no doubt going to continue to make some people more productive at certain tasks. But it's important to remember that that's only going to continue to help workers if they remain better placed to do those tasks than a machine. And as task encroachment continues, that becomes less and less likely for more and more tasks. You know, take sat-nav systems again. You know, today, as I said before, you know, they make it easier for taxi drivers to navigate unfamiliar roads. You know, they make them better at the wheel. But this is only going to be true so long as human beings are better than machines at steering a vehicle from A to B. And in the coming years, that's no longer going to be the case. You know, software is likely to drive cars more efficiently and safely than us. And at that point, it's simply not going to matter how good people are at driving a car, whether or not they have a sat-nav system. The machines will simply do that instead. Or take the bigger pie effect. In the future, economic pies will no doubt continue to grow. Incomes are going to be larger than ever before, and demands, demand for goods is going to continue to soar. Yet we cannot rely on this to necessarily bolster the demand for the work of human beings as it has in the past. Why? Because just as with that productivity effect, the bigger pie effect will only help 
if people, rather than machines, remain better placed to produce whatever, to carry out whatever tasks have to be done to produce all those goods that are now in demand. And again, as task encroachment continues, I think that becomes less likely. And you know, we can already catch a glimpse of this at work. Think of the UK agricultural sector. You know, this particular part of the British economic pie has grown dramatically over the last century and a half, but it hasn't created more work for human beings to do. British agriculture now produces about five times more than it did back in 1860, and yet it only requires about a tenth of the number of workers to do it. Similar story in UK manufacturing. You know, this sector now produces about 150% more than it did in 1948, but it requires 60% fewer workers to do it. And finally, think of the changing pie effect. You know, again, it's entirely true. The, ch- the economic pie may change, but in exactly the same way, as task encroachment continues, my fear is that it becomes more and more likely that machines rather than human beings will be better placed to do whatever new tasks have to be done. And again, if you look at newer parts of economic life, you might worry that this sort of thing is already unfolding. In 1964, the most valuable company in the US was AT&T, and it had 758,611 employees. But fast forward to 2018, and it's Apple, with only 132,000 employees. 2019, it was Microsoft, with only 131,000 employees. You know, more generally, research shows that in 2000, new industries that were created in the 21st century accounted for just 0.5% of all US employment. And so I think this captures, these ideas capture how it is we might find ourselves in a world with less work. You know, as machine, as time goes on and machines continue to become more capable, taking on tasks that once fell to human beings, that harmful substituting force is going to displace workers in the, you know, in the familiar way. And for a time, I think that helpful complementing force is going to continue to raise the demand for displaced workers elsewhere. And our challenge, and it's the challenge we face now, and I think it's the challenge we face for the next decade or two, which is this challenge of frictional technological unemployment. But as task encroachment goes on and on, and more and more tasks fall to machines, that helpful complementing force, I think, will be weakened as well. Human beings will find themselves confined or retreating to an ever-shrinking set of tasks, and there's no reason to think that the demand for those tasks will be enough to keep everyone who wants it in well-paid employment. And then, if that happens, our challenge will be structural technological unemployment. And so I say, you know, the world of work comes to an end, not with a big bang, but with a withering, you know, a gradual withering in the demand for the work of human beings as that substituting force gradually overruns the complementing force and the balance between the two no longer falls in favor of human beings as it has done up until now. So if this is right, what are the problems that it's going to create? And I think there are three great challenges that we're going to face as we move into a world with less work. The first is the economic problem, and it's a problem of inequality. You know, today, the labor market is the main way that we share out economic prosperity in society. Most people's jobs are their only source of income. So the question is, how is it that we're going to share out material prosperity in society when the traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, is less effective than in the past for some? How are we going to do it? The second challenge, I don't think it has anything really to do with economics at all. It's in the future, our lives are likely to become dominated by a small number of large technology companies who are responsible for developing these technologies. And in the 20th century, our main worry about large corporations was with their economic power. You know, we worried about things like prices that were too high or excessive profits, and we used competition policy to think about what we ought to do. I think in the 21st century, we're going to be far less concerned with the economic power of large technology companies and far more with their political power far more with the effects that they're having on things like our liberty and our democracy and issues of social justice. If you look at many of the complaints about large technology companies today, it's not about economics. It's about the effect they're having on the the social scaffolding that we've built together to live in society. And the final challenge, I think, is one of meaning. Um, there is a joke that I like about a, uh, a Jewish mother who goes to, the, goes to the beach with her son 
and her son goes into the sea to have a swim and it turns out he's not a good swimmer and he starts to struggle in the water and the mum sees the son struggling and cries out, turns around to the beach and cries out, help, my son, the doctor, is drowning, right? And I think there is a sense that many people have that the work that people do says something important about who they are, that work is not simply a source of income but also a source of meaning and purpose and direction in life as well. And so I think another one of the big challenges that we're going to face in a world with less work is not simply how do we share out income in society, but how is it that we share out meaning and purpose when a traditional source of doing so, the work that people do, may be less available than in the past. But I want to finish on an optimistic note, and this might sound slightly counterintuitive, and, but if, I, I do remain optimistic when I think about the 21st century, and the, and the reason is very simple, which is that in decades to come, technological progress is, going, is probably going to solve the economic problem that has dominated humankind until now. Yeah, again, if we think of the economy as a pie, the traditional challenge has been, how do we make that pie large enough for everyone to live on? You know, at the turn of the first century AD, if you had taken the global economic pie and divided it up into equal slices for everyone in the world, most people would have got a few hundred dollars. If you fast forwarded a thousand years, the same would have been true. You know, most people lived um, in subsistence. But over the last few hundred years, as we saw in that chart earlier on, economic growth has soared. And this growth has been driven by technological progress. Economic pies around the world have got far bigger. If you take the global economic pie today and divide it up into equal slices for everyone in the world, most people, you, you get about $10,700. Um, yeah. And technological unemployment and, and so today you get $10,700, but in, in 30 years, that'll be $20,000. In 60 years, it'll be $40,000. You know, by and large, we've come very close to solving that problem, which has plagued us until now. And technological unemployment, in a strange way, I think, will be a symptom of that success. You know, in the 21st century, we're going to solve that traditional problem. How do we make the pie large enough? But we're going to replace it with three others. The problems of inequality the problems of power, and the problems of meaning and purpose. And clearly, there's going to be a huge amount of disagreement about what we ought to do, uh, about how we should share out prosperity in society, how we constrain the political power of large technology companies, how we provide people with meaning and purpose. But I think these are, in the final analysis, you know, far better problems to have than the one that plagued our ancestors for centuries, which is how do we make the pie big enough in the first place? So thank you very much for your attention. I look forward now to hearing some of your reflections and taking some questions too. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. That was fascinating and thought-provoking uh, across a whole number of topics. Um, I should say the housekeeping bit I missed earlier was our hashtag. I don't know how I forgot it. I spend far too much of my time on uh, the infernal website that is Twitter. But our hashtag is hashtag RSA work. So please, any questions and thoughts and reflections, do share those with us because we like to keep the conversation going beyond the next 25 minutes. <coughs> I'm going to abuse my position to share and ask Daniel a couple of questions. And then I think we'll uh, come to questions from the floor in about uh, five or ten minutes uh, and then wrap up at about two. Uh, and I guess my first question really is about the nature of, of yeah. task encroachment, which yeah. is sort of the central economic the thesis in the book that you know, task encroachment, as you said, it's an iron law of economics. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of runs up against uh, what some economists have at least thought was an iron law of capitalism, which is that economic demand needs a home and through that is an opportunity for humans at work. And the thing I got most from the book really is when you talked a lot about particularly artificial intelligence, mm. But all of those refuges that we, or the stories that we tell ourselves about yeah. what is distinctively human yeah. and where we can find work, you kind of knock them all down. So I was wondering if you could kind of uh, give a bit of an explanation uh, about artificial intelligence and why it's so important to underpinning that theory of tax, task encroachment. Well, I, th I think I mean, one of the, the boundary that has been most firmly in place in people's thinking about what machines can and cannot do f until recently was this distinction between routine and non-routine tasks. 
it was thought that machines would be able to do routine, relatively straightforward things that human beings find easy to articulate, but non-routine things that require faculties like creativity or judgment or empathy, things that we struggle to explain, that those couldn't be automated. That's been the traditional view. And so if you take something like medical diagnosis, traditionally it was thought we'd never be able to automate that because if you sit down with a doctor and say, you sit down with doctors and say, look, tell me how is it that you make a medical diagnosis? They might be able, as they do, to give you a few rules of thumb and maybe point you to a particularly salient part of a medical textbook, but ultimately they'd struggle. They'd say things like it requires intuition, gut reaction, instinct, judgment. And, for all, uh, and, and because, because we struggle to articulate how it is we do these things, most people in artificial intelligence and most people in economics uh, for large parts of the 20th century thought we wouldn't be able to automate these things. If a human being can't articulate how it is we do something, where on earth do we begin in, writing a, in designing a system or setting some instructions for a machine to follow? And, and what's been so interesting in the last few years is that that's turned out not to be the case. The 2017, a team of researchers at Stanford announced the development of a system which if you give it a photo of a freckle, it will tell you as accurately as leading dermatologists why that freckle, uh, whether or not that freckle is cancerous. Um, and this was something that was thought to be impossible. But what's so interesting is if you look at how it works, it's not trying to copy the judgment of a human doctor. It knows it understands nothing about medicine at all. Instead, it's got a database of about 129,000 past cases, and it's using lots of advances in processing power, data storage capability, and algorithm design to essentially do a sort of pattern recognition exercise, hunting for similarities between them between all those cases and the particular photo that you've given it. It's performing the task in an unhuman way, based on the analysis of more cases than any doctor could hope to review in their lifetime. It doesn't matter that that human doctor couldn't explain what they did. And this, this is, and so it turns out that many non-routine tasks that we thought would be sort of indefinitely out of reach of automation are actually within reach, not by trying to copy the way that human beings do it, but by doing it in fundamentally different ways. Uh, and there's been a big shift, I think, in artificial intelligence, and this is what I write about in the book, from what I call purism, which was this belief that if you wanted to build a very capable system, you had to copy the way that human beings performed a task, to what's essentially pragmatism, which is just using all these advances in processing power, data storage, and algorithm design to perform these tasks in fundamentally different ways to us, in ways that don't necessarily resemble the ways that we think and reason and perform these activities. And that raises a whole new set of challenges and difficulties. But I think that's the most striking example in the last few years of a boundary that we thought was relatively fixed. Machines can do routine things and they can't do non-routine things falling away. And there's, it, it, you, Daniel makes this very, very clear in the book, the, the passages where, where the machines actually start to build buildings and design buildings and even create music. Yeah. And there are ways which we, you know, things we would retreat into as, as essentially human are yeah. just knocked away. That's right, and not simply composed music. I mean, composed music that an audience of sort of learned, learned musicians couldn't distinguish between whether or not it had been done by a machine or done by a particular composer. You know, it's kind of extraordinary uh, capabilities. I think that, so, so we at the RSA are an Enlightenment organisation. Yeah. We were formed in the Enlightenment. And so I'm <laughs> going to ask a very deep philosophical question here because I think one of the most profound things in that argument in the book yeah. is that you... A kind of the, the shift in artificial intelligence away from trying to copy the human mm. and the, the insight that it's actually different intelligence and mm. ultimately better intelligence. Have you killed the Enlightenment? If human yeah. reason is no longer the source of, of either thinking or work, yeah. what do we do? So, I mean, two observations. So the short answer is no, I don't think the Enlightenment <laughs> Two observations. I mean, one is, I think the word intelligence to talk about these systems and machines is wrong. You know, they are not, I think one of the great mistakes, one of the great branding mistakes of artificial intelligence was to call it artificial intelligence because these systems aren't intelligent. They're not, you know, they don't think or reason or operate like us at all. They're performing tasks that might require intelligence from us, but doing it in fundamentally different ways. Um, I th in the original discussions, there was a moment when they thought about calling it computational rationality instead. <laughs> not as glamorous a, a sort of a, a, a title, but I think it's more accurate. It would be I mean, harder to get think tank harder, harder to get people excited <laughs> about. But, Yeah. Uh, but the second thing is that 
I think, um, and it's it's something I write about a little in the book, which is that you know if you if you walk into the Sistine Chapel, for instance, and have a look at the ceiling, you think two things. One thing is you think, gosh, that's beautiful, but you also think, isn't it remarkable that it was done by this human being? You know, when you listen to a piece of music, you not only think, gosh, that's incredibly moving, but you also cannot believe that this talented person did it. You know, often for many of the things that we do in life, we value not only the outcome itself, mm. but also how it's done. You know, in blind taste tests, those Nespresso coffee capsules, not Nespresso, all those coffee capsules, <laughs> um, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that in blind taste tests, people can't distinguish between can't them and the sort of done, one done by a kind of artisanal barista. But yet there were various Michelin star restaurants which, which had started using these machines and people were furious that it hadn't been done by a human being because they valued the very craft itself. And I think you know, there, are, yeah, there are many things that we do both in work and also in our spare time um, which really aren't about the outcomes that we're achieving. It's about the process through which it's done. And, and so long as we value human beings doing these particular activities, then machines can't encroach on those things. It's interesting. It's something I'm starting to call for the football fans here, the VAR problem. Yes. Which is where people want worse results, but a human to do them. Yeah. Um, I think it's... Let, let's talk... Let's ask one question about what we should do. Uh, because one, one policy that you sketch out at length in the book, which we're very, very interested and keen on here yeah. at, the, at the RSA, is a universal basic income. Yes. Um, which you think is an important part of yeah. how we respond. So I wonder if you could... <clears throat> your version is a little bit different to some yeah. of the other versions, so I wondered if you could unpack that there and... And tell us a little bit why you think it's so important. Sure. So, I mean, the, just to go back to that, you know, the, the economic challenge, I think, is a distributional one. It's how do we share out material prosperity in society when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, is less effective than in the past. And the argument that I make in the book is that if we find ourselves in that sort of world, what takes the labor market's place, I think we, we need the state to do it, that we need a big state to take on the sorts of responsibilities for sharing out prosperity that traditionally we've relied upon the labor market to do. So I think some sort of basic income is a good idea. The, the, the worry I have about the basic income is that it's often presented as a universal basic income. Um, and what I argue for in the book is not a universal basic income, but a conditional basic income. And my worry about the, what, my worry about the universality of it is that you know, today, social solidarity, in a sense, comes from a feeling that everyone is paying into the collective economic pot, mm. um, either through the work that they do and the taxes <laughs> that they pay, or if people aren't in work, there's an expectation that if they're able to work, they actively look for work, or they train to find some new work. Um, and that sense of social solidarity comes from a feeling that we're all pulling in the same direction. The problem with the universal basic income is that it doesn't ask for anything in return. And I think you know, why it might do a good job of solving the distribution problem, sharing out prosperity in society, it doesn't address that contribution problem, mm. which is that as a society, we want to feel that everyone is contributing in some way. The challenge, though, is that what sort of contributions might we ask people to make if there isn't work necessarily mm. for them to do? And so I spend quite a lot of time looking in the book at, well, might we ask people to make non-economic contributions? Sounds a bit wacky, but, you know, already today, 15 million people in the UK volunteer. That's a num that number is half as big as the total, UK, total number of people in employment in the UK. Andy Haldane, the chief economist at the Bank of England. Here, to, here today. Here, here to, oh, yeah, so Andy, today. Okay, good. So he, he, he values the, energy, uh, the, uh, um, the volunteering sector at £50 billion, pounds, uh, which is you know, larger than the UK energy sector. You know, might we think about asking people to make non-economic contributions, which we all think are very socially valuable, uh, but at the moment aren't recognized in the marketplace with a wage. And I think there's an interesting opportunity as we think about a world with less work to ask, well, what kind of non-economic activities as a community might we recognize in some way, uh, which perhaps the market at the moment doesn't recognize in paying, it, in paying a wage for it? Right, fantastic. Uh, let's open it up and let's take some questions from the floor. Who do we have? We've got a gentleman here and then a gentleman at the back. Can I get a 
a female speaker to ask a question? <laughs> Just there, there as well, please. We'll do it in threes. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Um, it's Rob McCargo, PwC. Um, fascinating uh, topic. I think one thing that we uh, struggle with, I think, when we're talking about this issue around work displacement and yeah. jobs of the future is... The, the, the pace at which both political and business leaders are not adopting the solutions. And yeah. it sounds like a great idea, conditional basic income. But in my conversations with both business and political leaders, it feels like the <coughs> short-term horizon is the dominant topic of the narrative. And there's very little being done to think about some of the longer-term yeah. issues we're facing. So in terms of the solutions you're proposing in your book, how are you going to encourage the, the power yeah. brokers to really engage this seriously? Yeah. I mean, I should say that I, you know, I don't think that the challenge, I don't think the time has quite yet come for these sorts of basic income interventions. As I am quite clear in the book that I think the challenge through the 2020s isn't one of there not being enough work for people to do. The challenge is how do we provide, I think it's really an educational one, which is how do we provide people with the skills and capabilities to do that work? Um, and, uh, and, and that, I think, is the challenge. I mean, how do, how do you... How do you convince people? Well, you, you, you show people that's the challenge and you show that they're not doing enough. So, you know, we all recognize, I think, that computer science is an increasingly important skill for people to learn if they're interested. Uh, and that's recognized in some, sense, in some senses by what policymakers here say and by changes to the curriculum. But there was a survey done of teachers just a few years ago who were being asked to teach computer science and many of them, it turned out, had little background in the material. Many didn't feel comfortable teaching it. And the reason was, was because many of those teachers, I suspect, were the same people who were teaching ICT, information communication technology, teaching students how to use PowerPoint and Excel and Word. And clearly, computer science is very different from ICT, but I think there was, I suspect there was a thought that both had something to do with technology, and so we could ask people to do both of them. So I think, you know, I think many of the solutions that we need aren't, for now, aren't particularly novel. Uh, it's just actually doing, uh, actually implementing it properly. I don't think anyone would be surprised by saying we ought to teach young people computer science. Um, there was a gentleman in the middle there somewhere. Um, yes, you, do, you mentioned the universal basic income, mm. and you, um, you have problems with considering it as universal. Yes. Because people might not be, you know, people should be It's an interesting proposal. I mean, I, I would still suspect that my anxieties still hold in the sense that those who are con contributing 25% of something very large or 25% of something average will feel, uh, might feel uncomfortable with the fact that uh, some other people are contributing 25% of nothing. Uh, and I, I just, again, I think that this this contribution problem, this contribution challenge, how do we maintain a sense of social solidarity in a world where some people aren't able to make an economic contribution and it's unreasonable of us to expect that they can? How do we maintain social solidarity in that world? I think it's a huge, I think it's a huge challenge and I don't think a universal basic income can solve it. Hi. Um, you might have partly answered this question, yeah. so I'll give you another question too, <laughs> if that's all right. Um, firstly, just to follow on from the earlier question about... Yeah power brokers. Yeah. If you were in Westminster right now, what would you be thinking about in terms of your book and how yeah. we prepare? So you might have partly answered that in terms of education and yeah. so on. But also, any thoughts on the gender dimension to this mm. in, what, in what particular? Is it going to affect women in... Well, I'm sure it will affect women in different ways to men, but how? Yeah. And what does that mean for us as a society? Yeah. I, the, what would I do from a policy standpoint... I think 
again, I just think the challenge through the 2020s is overwhelmingly an educational one. How do we prepare young people for the sort of work that's going to... Um, and part of it is about teaching people I, very crudely, you can either teach people to build the machines or you can teach them to compete with the machines. We should either be teaching people to do what these systems and machines cannot do or we ought to be teaching people to design and operate them. I think the challenge is that often we're doing neither of those things and teaching people to do precisely the sorts of routine things that these systems and machines are currently good at doing. And I talk about that in the book, but I think that you know, the fundamental thing for now is an educational challenge. Um, I think one of the most striking observations, and, and I think there's a conversation to be had about what the implications are, which is, and it was reflected in those numbers in those slides, that many of the things that we find hardest to automate are often, often involve, uh, many of the tasks and activities that we find hardest to automate are often found in jobs which are predominantly done by women. Um, that's one observation. The second observation is that often that work is often not very well paid or not, mm. well, or not paid at all. And so again, I think, I think there's a, you know, I, I don't know what the, I don't necessarily know what that means, but I think that observation I, th I think this problem clearly has a gender dimension to it. Mm. And I think that's the most striking, uh, for me, one of the most striking uh, aspects of it. Yeah, I think we've found that in our research as yeah. well. That I mean, I think in the, it's a slightly outdated statistic, but in, in three or four years ago, over 90% <laughs> of A-level uh, computer science students were boys. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, yes, women seem to be doing very well out of the growth and caring jobs that, yeah. that, that the economy is producing quite <clears throat> quite you know, substantially at the moment, but on the other side of the fence, the high-wage jobs it's producing in, 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 in the tech sector, mm. it's a challenge to get women involved in, in those jobs at the moment. Uh, next round, so there's a gentleman here who's very patient first time round, and a lady at the back, and then one just here, and then that might be it. We might get another round in, but we'll see how we go. Thank you. My question is, you've painted a picture that you believe we can predict. Yeah that work won't disappear. Yes. And you've, if you like, debunked the fact that every 10 years the New York Times says the world's going to end without work, etc. But how quickly can we predict the kind of works that are going to change dramatically? Everybody talks, for example, about truck drivers in America, 300,000 of them being put out of work by automation. But how quickly can we predict where it's going to go in time to put in place an educational path yeah. Yeah. that actually supplies the need that's going to be there. My concern is that there's a bit of a conundrum there, which is you may be able to identify it, but by the time you've identified it, it's actually too late yeah. to prepare the next cohort to deal with the new needs. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. You're exactly right. And the uncertainty is a sort of inescapable feature of the problem. And so I think one response... Um, and it's, it's what I write about in the book when thinking about what we ought to do with education. We ought, it's not simply changing what we teach. It's not simply changing how we teach. Yeah, it's, it's a separate conversation, but classrooms today look very similar <laughs> to classrooms 100 years ago. But it's also when we teach. Um, I think one of the most... Um, you know, how do you respond to uncertainty, inescapable uncertainty about what skills and capabilities will be valuable in the future? Well, it's being able to retrain and go back to education at different moments in life at the same sort of intensity and seriousness that you do at the start of your life. You know, we tend to think education that's something you really do properly at the start. You build up what economists call a stock of human capital. And then as you move through life, you draw down on it. But, you know, you do it once and it's done. And I think in, face of the sort, in the face of the sorts of uncertainty that you're describing, and I think is characteristic of the problem, we need to be far more flexible when it comes to, yeah education. Okay. Um, how do you see um, work displacement affecting immigration and notions of nationalism? Notions of? Nationalism. What, what, what's your, what, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, I suppose, I suppose uh, um, it's, it's how work displacement affects geopolitics and immigration and, in, and then in turn how that affects social attitudes towards um, close, closing, back, closing down countries um, generally. Yeah. And, and you're, you're, I'm sensing you think that their intention that loss of work, less work means more hostility to... Yes. Yeah. 
I think I think what well, I, th I think you know if you look around you know I don't think that's necessarily an observation about the future I think it's something we you know arguably already see today um, you know there is often an instinct to you know draw up draw up the pull up the drawbridge uh, when economic insecurity you know this is the sort of stylized story when economic security rises at, at home and this is why I think it's so important to start engaging with what at the moment are these quite fuzzy ideas about social solidarity and you know what what role does the state have in trying to strengthen this sense of community that we have and how how when we talk about we as a community or as a nation who you know who's included in that we these are all conversations that you know we need to um, we need to have because some more unpalatable parts of the political spectrum are certainly having them, and, and it would just be a disaster if these debates are captured by those people. And gentleman at the front here. Thank you. Um, I think that your presentation was excellent. My question is about uh, task encroachment yeah. and social engagement. To what I see as a limitation um, in the news. We've heard about, um, especially young people, depression and, yeah. and suicide. And for all the good of AI, yeah. it can never say, I know how you feel. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one, one of the, uh, the challenges. And the second point is, can you see a good work relationship between the humans and AI? Um. All right, so what I'm about to say is in no way meant to sort of undermine or devalue oh, the role. No, no, the role of human empathy and, <laughs> and social interaction. So just that's kind of the, uh, but but <laughs> I want to, there's a great story of, and I, I write about it in the book about a computer scientist called Joseph Weitzman, who was one of the founding fathers of artificial intelligence in the 1970s, and he built a system called Eliza, which was it was meant to be a bit of a joke. It was meant to mimic. Uh, a human psychotherapist. So you'd sit down with Eliza and Eliza would ask you, how are you feeling? And you'd say, I'm feeling well. And it would say, are you really feeling well? But it, it, was, a, it, was, it was a parody of how people think about uh, psychotherapy and uh, what psychologists do and so on. Anyway, his secretary, who knew full well the intention with which he built the system, uh, he invited his secretary in to sit down with Eliza. She sat down with Eliza and it asked her, a question, she responded, asked her another question. She turned around to Joseph and said, Joseph, I'd like you to leave the room. Um, and this made him feel incredibly uncomfortable. And it really troubled him and it really, um, it really threw him for the rest of his career that, that he seemed to find himself in a situation in which um, this, this human being felt more comfortable talking with an inanimate, unthinking machine than with her. Now, actually, from a distance, maybe it's not that surprising. Maybe she had sort of personal uh, issues that she didn't really want to share with her boss, and she felt more comfortable sharing it with the system that wasn't going to judge her or wasn't going to remember and could maybe help her. Yeah. I don't know, but I just think that um, sometimes we confuse the traditional way in which we might have solved a problem and so, um, with in something like psychiatry, sitting down with another human being and engaging in a sort of interaction uh, with the problem itself. Uh, and there might be other ways to solve a problem without necessarily relying upon the traditional you know, faculties that we've had to require from other human beings. You might be able to use there's a system called AITherapy.com where you can go and do CBT online. And I think many people find it very useful, even though there's not an empathetic human being sitting there. Again, this is not to say that empathy and social interaction is invaluable. But just to sort of suggest that actually maybe there are certain tasks and activities that might have required those faculties from us in the past, but we might be able to do very differently today. And we've got time for one more question, I think. <laughs> right here. You got in quick. Um, my name's Anna, and... Oh, thank you. Uh, Anna, and... I'm not sure this There we go. Um, I'm interested in the role of the state a little bit yeah. um, similar to the lady above. So I think you talked about um, you need to increase the size of the state if you're going to have some level of basic income, yeah. some level of redistribution. I would imagine that you might need some increased level of state when you say that the next century is about education. 
But how do you juxtapose that with a sort of increasingly globalised world, borderless transactions and the ability of big tech companies like you've mentioned to, in effect, be stateless? How do we square that circle? Well, I think it's, it is, the issue is about squaring a circle. You know, they are in tension. I think there is a big tension between, um, between large technology companies being able to move around the world and say one of the suggestions in my book, you know, taxing them more heavily. This is, you know, the, this is, these are the sorts of problems we're going to have to grapple with. I don't, I don't have, you know, easy solutions. I just, I think this is, these are the challenges that we're going to face. Um, and I think, I think this tension between community and the rest of the world is, is going to be you know, one of the defining ones. And, there's, and there's, you know, there are lots of reasons for that tension existing other than the ones that, other than the sort of economic trends that I'm interested in. But I also think that the economic trends I'm interested in are going to, are going to drive it more. I think it's also one of the ways that, like reasons we at the RSA now, when we're thinking about policy for the future work, like to talk about reimagining the social contract rather than um, just doing public policy. Because, you know, we have to build a public legitimacy that includes things like the tech firms, company things like, you know, organisations like the tech firms as part of uh, the, the network for social change. Because if we just rely on, you know, a magical state or a magical politician, they probably don't have all the solutions because of challenges like that. So we have to kind of change the way people uh, think about the problem in the first place. I think that's just about it. I really do feel we could... I always feel with these events on a lunchtime we could go a little bit longer. And, um, Daniel, I think you're going to be signing books uh, in one of the rooms out the back there. Uh, our wonderful RSA staff will help, uh, help you find uh, Daniel if you want to engage a little bit more. But can I just say thank you very much for coming? I think this is one of your first events in this series. So thank you very much for coming here to the RSA to give us a first taste of what is a fantastic Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.